Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 46. Medicaid is helpful. Medicare for all would be better. My guest, Emily Leonard, is a health policy analyst for Medicaid for the state of Maryland. Her work focuses on developing and implementing Medicaid programs to meet the unique needs of the state's residents. She received her master's degree in public health practice and policy from the University of Maryland, College Park. Ms. Leonard grew up in a rural town on the eastern shore of Maryland and is passionate about rural health advocacy and Medicare for All. The views expressed by Ms. Leonard are her own and do not represent any agency or organization. Emily Leonard, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you so much, Joe. I'm so excited to be here and to talk a little bit about Medicaid today. So I just want to repeat, you are speaking as an individual, not as a member of any agency or organization. Absolutely. Um, All the views that I express today are my own and are not affiliated with any organization or agency. This is all coming from myself. As we mentioned in the introduction, you are a Medicaid health policy analyst. So I'd like to start with a basic question. What is Medicaid? Medicaid, and it's sometimes called medical assistance or MA, is a joint federal state program that provides health and long-term care coverage to low-income children and parents, pregnant women, elderly people, and people living with disabilities. And I'll use Maryland as an example just for the purposes of this discussion. Uh, Just in Maryland alone, uh, Medicaid benefits are given to 1.4 million people. So that's one in six uh, Marylanders. So it's a way for many people across the United States to get health insurance um, using federal and state dollars. For children, in in Maryland, there's MCHIP, which is a Maryland Children's Health Program. So children also get full health benefits, the same benefits uh, that someone, an adult, would get as well. And those are given from a variety of managed care organizations, and I'll call them MCOs throughout our conversation. To give you just an example of some of the things that Medicaid and MCHIP offers, uh, Medicaid offers lower free, pres- low-cost or free prescription drugs, laboratory and x-ray services outpatient substance use treatment, mental health services, vision care for children. So there's a lot of variety of things that we do offer that are very similar to private insurance and what you would get from a private health insurance plan. We'll discuss that more later. But other thing I have found is people are often confused between Medicare and Medicaid. So Could you please tell us what the difference is between the two programs? So I often find people get it confused as well. I think Medicare is a more, well, maybe you could say well-known 
Medicare is for people 65 or above. So when you, you will age into Medicare, whether you sign up for it or not, you have the option to do it. Medicaid is something that is offered for people that are low income and fall under a different variety of eligibility groups. But a person of any age can be on Medicaid. We have children. For example, myself, I was on Medicaid for a period of time. There's no age distinction, whereas Medicare is just 65 years or older. Another difference for me is I feel like there is a, and this is just from my experience and and what I've seen is, I feel like there's less of a stigma with Medicare. Uh, I think just like anything in America, I can speak for America as uh, someone that grew up here is, I think poverty and being low income is stigmatized in this country. And I think people associate Medicaid with sometimes with the connection to poverty. I think Medicare is like, okay, it's something that you earn because you've gotten older where it's like, oh, Medicaid. So that's something that is also a difference that I find. And we'll get into this talking about income limits, but I think a lot of people don't realize that they can qualify for Medicaid based on what they make. So. We can talk about that a little bit later. Okay, that sounds good. The other question that I would like to clarify is, I have found that a lot of people think that long-term care benefits are provided by Medicare, and they're not. They're actually provided by Medicaid. Is that correct? Yes. So Medicaid offers long-term services and supports, and some examples of those are These are provided in home and community-based settings, as well as in institutions. So institutional settings include nursing facilities, intermediate care facilities for individuals living with intellectual disabilities. Uh, We offer services for home and community-based services, and those vary by program, but those are not limited to uh, personal assistance, nursing, nurse monitoring, medical daycare. So in Maryland, as an example, there are 42,000, over 42,000 individuals receiving long-term care services and support. And I actually work, they call it LTSS. In a previous role, I actually did work for uh, delivering long-term services and supports. And it's really cool and something I really always appreciate about it is, although, and this is something that I see a lot, is there is this idea that if you're on Medicaid, you won't have choice. Or like, I feel like people feel like they won't have like that dignity of being like, I have the freedom to choose my provider where that's so far from the truth. And that's something that I saw with long-term services and supports too, as someone that administered it on the ground. We prioritize people's dignity. We prioritize their ability to choose their provider and what they wanted to do with their lives. So there's a lot of like flexibility with Medicaid that I don't think people realize. So... One of the things you said is generally, I believe that Medicaid is associated with poverty. Why do Mm -hmm. we need Medicaid? That's a great question. I think it's so, I could go on for like the next 30 hours about it, but then no one would want to listen to this podcast and get sick of it, but I can like condense it. Many working class Americans don't have any safety net if they get sick and don't have health insurance. Like, I can use myself as an example. I'm a working class person. Um, and when I got picked off my mom's health insurance plan at 26, I got a letter in the mail and they said, okay, you can use COBRA and stay on your mom's plan for like $800 a month. 
And for the majority of Americans, that's not feasible and it will never be feasible um, paying that much money a month. But many people are doing it. So I have two options, which is be uninsured. The risks of being uninsured are, are massive. Bankruptcy, financial ruin, um, <laughs> your health, above all things, is like foregoing treatment is something that nobody wants to do. So for many, so many people, and I think so many more of us than we know, it serves as a safety net when you can't work. There are times when you just can't work and it's not because you are, quote, lazy. And that's another thing I think in America I would love to see us get past is like many people don't work because whether they, they're disabled, work is not available. Like I come from a very rural area where work is hard to find. And that's a symptom of a greater issue that is out of every one of our control. That's it's not something that anyone chooses. I didn't choose to grow up in an area where there's not, there wasn't work in my industry. Um, and so sometimes you don't have work. So that tie within our country that is a crux of all of our issues is the fact that it's tied to your employee getting health insurance. Well, many of us, there's times when we just don't have an employer. So that's one reason I think is it gives people that option when they are unable to have to have work um, or they will never be able to provide a way for them to get on health insurance. And then on top of that, many lower income individuals do not have access to health insurance. Like I said, you might not be able to find work um, where you live. Just a symptom of your, of your condition that you have no control over as a human being. Um, oftentimes minimum wage, wage jobs don't offer health insurance or if they do, the premiums are so high that it wouldn't make sense based on what the person is bringing home. Like if I'm, I, I got a job, I'm, I'm working at McDonald's, but the rate that I'm bringing home is, is not, it's not enough to pay that premium. I'd be left with nothing and I still need to pay for food. I still need to pay for rent. People need a way in this country to have health insurance even if they can't afford premiums and that is where Medicaid steps in. Many of many people are working actively, have jobs and have Medicaid. They have the public option there for them so that they can have the care they need, have their job, but they're not totally funneling their whole paycheck into their premiums. So that's a great option for people who are in like jobs that don't pay as much. One of the questions I have and We'll use Maryland as the example since you said we were Mm -hmm. doing that. And I realize it may be different for other states, but if people lose their jobs and need to get health insurance through Medicaid because they can't afford regular health insurance, can they get on Medicaid at any time? Yeah, and I think that's the really cool thing about it. I think with the uh, Affordable Care Act, a lot of us have kind of gotten into this mindset, like there's an open enrollment period. And if I miss it, I am totally screwed. Like I can't get health insurance. And it's the same with my employer-based insurance. Like, And for many of us listening to this podcast, there's an open enrollment period. If you want to make changes to your health insurance, you better figure it out and do it in that period. You miss it. Well, that stinks. Cool thing about Medicaid is you can get on it anytime. And using Maryland, for example, if you are a Maryland citizen, you can get on the Maryland Health Connection website and enroll at any time, and you can get off at any time. Like for me, 
I found employment. I was lucky enough to have a job. Um, I fell out once I got the job of the um, income eligibility for Medicaid. So I just called and said, hey, I don't need Medicaid anymore. Thank you. Um, And I just didn't have it. So it's easy to get on and off. Um, And I think it's much easier than people think. I think there's just also another association with like government-run programs that they're really difficult to get on. But I think it's, it's gotten to a point where it is easy. It's easy to understand, and it's a lot less intimidating than people think. So I think that's one of my favorite things about Medicaid is you can get on and off. That brings me to my next question. How is Medicaid structured in Maryland, for example? As far as structure goes, I can kind of start with, like, eligibility. So. There's, we use something called the federal poverty level, um, and that's a measure of income issued every year by the Department of Health and Human Services. And those are used to determine your eligibility for certain programs and benefits, and that includes getting on the marketplace, uh, getting Medicaid, and then CHIP coverage, which is for kids. Um, so, for example, in Maryland, um, if a child is up to 322% of the federal poverty level, they qualify. If you are a pregnant woman, you if you are within 264% of the federal poverty level, you'll qualify. Um, so I can use like I can use myself as an example. So I am one person in my household and I'm a, considered an adult. That's my eligibility group. So if I make $17,244 a year um, or less, then I can qualify for Medicaid. Once you Go through the process of seeing you're eligible. If you're eligible, and that's on the Maryland Health Exchange website, Maryland Health Connection website, rather. Then you will choose your MCO. And I previously mentioned MCOs, but those are managed care organizations. We have nine in Maryland. So when I enrolled in Medicaid myself, you can take a look at which, which first and foremost, which MCO covers your area. So different MCOs will cover different areas in Maryland. Um, so I got on Priority Partners. That's one of the NCOs. And you also can see like what they cover. Across the board, they're required to cover certain things and they enter in a contract with, with Maryland Medicaid and they are required to operate in a certain way. Um, and then the state will, and, and many states in the United States do it this way. So then that's their responsibility to manage the care for the individual. They're paid a capitation rate and that is um, a way to basically it's assess, um, they do a risk assessment and decide, okay, Emily will cost on average maybe this month, this much a month to pay for care. And depending on the health conditions I have, that rate will change. And the state will give the insurance company, one of the MCOs, a per month per member rate to pay for my care. If they can accrue savings, if they, can innovate and manage my care in a way that there's savings, they can keep those savings, but if spending goes over, then they don't get more money. On top of that, some of our services are paid through fee-for-service. So that's like every single, like any service that I would get. So for example, I mentioned LTSS. A lot of our LTSS long-term services are fee-for-service. So every service provided, then Medicaid will then pay for those services. So say I was living with like a developmental disability, then those services would be fee-for-service. So they're not included in the capitation rate from the NCO. Those are separate services. Um, 
So that's how that works. There's just a number of different ways we pay. Um, but the majority of our care is, is delivered through MCOs. One of the questions I have, you mentioned a capitation rate. Yeah. Would a company have an incentive to deny care so that they could make more money? Technically, yes. Like I feel like in any case, if you say, hey, here's this chunk of money, do with it what you will. I think you automatically think, okay, yeah, they would do that. But that being said, there is a strict contract set between the state agency and their organization. So it's already written out, like, here's what we are requiring you. If you want to participate, and if you want to receive our state agency's funds, then you have to operate in a certain way. I am not as close to, like, the claims and and all of that. There's, like, genius human beings who do all that stuff, and they really know the program, like, the back of their hand. But if claims are being denied by an insurance company, that's something that we monitor. and we would be made aware of that and then that they would then be in violation of the agreement we set up. So I think while like definitely if it wasn't something that was monitored and regulated, then yes, but it doesn't happen because they can't because if they did, then we would be made aware of it and it would be in violation of the agreement. And you're, you're talking about Maryland now as the example. Yes. And do you know if that applies to other States? I'm not sure, but I would assume that every, like the way that they're going to do it is going to be, this is a contract set up and you have to cover these things that we agreed upon. Although they are like private health insurance companies, there are limits. They can't operate how they would run it because it's conditional on if they want to receive these capitation rates, they have to play by the rules that we created. Previously, You mentioned that over 1.4 million people are currently on Medicaid in Maryland, about one in six people in the state. Do you know what percentage of pregnancies are covered by Medicaid? So I don't know the percentage, but we cover pregnant women up to 264% of the federal poverty level. So, um, I, I don't know the exact number of percentage, but like that's who we would cover. So, in what ways do you think Medicaid works well? And in what ways do you see problems with Medicaid? As far as in the ways that it works well, first and foremost, I personally think that it's easy to get on Medicaid, and I think it's we have a lot of support for individuals who need help and have questions. So it's an easy way for people who are already stressed out. Like I know a lot of people listening can relate. Not having health insurance is a stressful experience. The whole world of healthcare is, is stressful. And I think we provide an easy way for people to get health insurance that is accessible. On top of that, I think while we do cover the basic healthcare and the, the basic needs of people, there's these things called waivers. And waivers let state agencies deviate from federal guidelines by adding or substituting new programs, as long as the state agency can prove that they would benefit the population. 
So something that is interesting about Medicaid programs across every state is they're going to look very different. And that's because states have, and that's permitted by the Center of Medicaid and Medicare Services, CMS, the law permits CMS to waive certain aspects of the law to enable states to test different approaches uh, for eligibility, benefits, delivery systems, and financing. So I think that's one of the ways it works well because while we are a federal program, the states and local governments do ultimately know best about their populations. Like, so for example, I could use Baltimore City. Like, there's a high number of houses in Baltimore City where kids may ha- have high blood lead levels because they live in houses with lead paint. That's something that may- might be unique to Maryland. Whereas in California, there might be issues that this populations run into that are you totally unique to California. And the waiver process allows us to modify our programs and create new programs in ways that benefit those populations. And then if a state wants to substantially change how it operates Medicaid, it can also change its state plan. And you can do something, you can submit a state plan amendment. And that is another way you can create programs that cater to the individual needs of the population. So I think that's something that I, I really love. And I think it's something that kind of goes against the common held belief about uh, Medicaid and state-run health insurance programs. It's like, well, like one size fits all. It's like, no, actually, like the people, state and local governments can actually influence and provide services that meet the needs of the populations that we're serving. Um, And this is a buzzword in health today, or buzz phrase rather, social determinants of health. And these are conditions in the environment in which people are born, live, work, and play, and they affect their health. So with these waiver services, we can provide programs for people that will affect those social determinants of health and overall change their health just by doing things that will benefit them where they live. So I think Medicaid really can improve quality of life beyond just like paying for people's checkups. It's like deeper than that. And that's something that I think works really well. And what ways do you think it doesn't work well? I can just say that it doesn't work well in the fact that we can't provide care to everybody. We are efficient because we have bargaining power because we have a large chunk of people being insured through us. So we can get competitive prices. If a provider doesn't want to work with us, then they're missing out on a chunk of people that they can't do business with. If they can't agree with the prices that we set, then they can't work with us. So for me, I think if if you can imagine it going from on a state level to a, I think to 330 million people, and hard, imagine the bargaining power that we would have. And we just don't have that currently because we're just one state. I think if the payer was the federal government and every single person in the United States was under the federal single-payer system, then the bargaining power would increase and we could put a lot of price gouging on an even better level than we're doing now. Um, under Medicaid, we don't we don't hoard profits like in an insurance company because we're using your federal tax dollars and state tax dollars in a way that's as efficient as possible. And I just think efficiency could increase if every single person was under a federal single-payer program. 
So that leads into my next question, which you touched on. You mentioned a federal single-payer program. So do you think that Medicare for All would be a better solution to meet the health care needs of this nation? I do. And this as a little thing to add. A couple years back, I went to this book reading of this guy named Tim Faust, and he wrote this really great book called Health Justice Now. And one of the quotes that I really like from him is, he says, our goal is not just insurance, but emancipation. We must never compromise until all of us have been liberated. And he was the first person that introduced the idea to me that healthcare actually is freedom for people. So I think we need Medicare for all. We need a federal single payer program because we need people deserve to be free. I think it's a right. I think we are it's a moral obligation in this country to provide people with that freedom. Not only does it grant financial freedom, and you can talk to anybody like a business owner or someone who is across socioeconomic statuses. You can, I think many people can agree that healthcare costs crush people financially. Whether you own a business, you're paying a lot for healthcare premiums. That is, your business is not thriving like it could be because you are putting money into people's health insurance when actually that could be figured out by the federal government. Um, on top of that, people are paying huge co-pays even with um, their own private insurance care. They're paying huge premiums. So I think financial freedom level is necessary to provide this economic stimulus for everybody across the board in the United States. I think it would provide people with more time. I remember years ago, I worked at a nonprofit. It was based in health insurance. That was a big aspect of the work. I was 20 years old and a woman came out I worked for and she was like, I work in health insurance and I still don't understand it. Like it's so complicated. And I think that's unnecessary with federal single payer. It wouldn't be so complicated. Um, and then I think it just gives people the freedom to exist in a body that is healthy. Um, and that just offers so much for a person. Like, for example, people with mental health issues now, they're taking care of, they end up in jail just by the conditions of their mental health issues. A lot of times it happens to people. What if they had health insurance and they could just be treated with dignity from the get-go? Uh, what if instead of feeling an odd pain in your body and you ignore it, you get it taken care of now? because you have health insurance, and you avoid that pain escalating into something deeper. So I just think there's so many reasons, but I think ultimately the idea of freedom financially, mentally, physically, is why we need single payer. Well, I think that's certainly true. One is financial freedom, and you mentioned freedom. It would also give people the option to change jobs more freely, or even start their own mm -hmm. businesses because healthcare would not be a concern. Absolutely. So I'd like... I I'm sorry, go ahead. Keep going. No, keep going. I was going to say, I totally agree with you. <laughs> so I'd just like to know, before we end, do you have anything that you would like to add? So I would just like to add um, that I kind of feel like there's this stigma in America that like government-run programs are not good, that government workers are like, lazy and they don't care. And it's so funny because people will say that to me, like when we're having discussions about 
health insurance and single payer. And they'll, they'll say, like, well, how, the government can't do anything, right? And I'm like, hey, like I work in the government and it actually is run really well by really efficient people. And I had previously mentioned this, but we have no incentive to hoard any profits. We are just people where I think we're public servants that want something to run, be run well. And there's no premium. There's no hidden fees with a government on single payer. And I think, so I, I challenge people when they have this association with government being poorly run or government workers being lazy, I, I would like to just let people know now that I believe that that's very far from the truth. Uh, we know our population, the healthcare sector in the federal, state, and local governments could expand to meet the needs of the people with the proper funding and with more employees. If we eliminated the private healthcare sector, they could join the government. It would create jobs. We, we could expand and include people and just expand the, the industry in a way, but it would be on the public side of things. I think a lot of times people will say, we won't have the providers if we have single payer. We won't, we don't have enough providers. There won't be enough healthcare professionals to do it. And I think it's currently very difficult to become a healthcare provider in America. We can increase that pipeline so that there more, are more providers to do the work. Same thing for government. We could expand the government in a way that there would be enough government workers to do the work. And so I just think that there's a lot of limiting beliefs and I challenge people to expand their their minds with that and let them know that like this is so possible if we just move towards it. And then lastly, if you're listening to this and you're not insured or you know someone who isn't insured, have them check out Maryland Health Connections website and see if they qualify. Um, it's easy to use and you might be someone that's living without health insurance and it doesn't have to be that way and you can use your own Medicaid. So I encourage people to not be afraid to see if they possibly could qualify because you might surprise yourself. Well, that's certainly may be true for Maryland. I'm not sure how true mm -hmm. it would be for other states. And Unfortunately, yeah. The other thing I would add, just to your point, you know, a lot of people fear when you mention Medicare for All, they fear government-run insurance. But in my previous podcast, I interviewed Dr. Anna Stratus. And based on what she said, what we should fear is for-profit private health insurance companies, because she said they place a tremendous burden. And when she went back to do some work in Canada as a doctor, she said it was very freeing because she could actually treat her patients the way she wanted, get them the treatment they needed without the hassles that you have in the U.S. So I just want to make that point. And Emily, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. It was so much fun. I love talking about single payers, so thank you for everything. You're welcome. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.